So uh, I wonder if you'd like to turn to the passage that we read, the second passage we read, uh, in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. It was nearly 11 months ago that we first started looking at the book of Joshua together. And in some ways, it's appropriate that we come to this section of the book uh, this morning. Last March, if you were with the congregation last March, you may remember that uh, we had just said farewell to our minister, our senior minister of the previous seven years. And it was with a degree of apprehension that we embarked upon this time of vacancy when we didn't have a minister. We've got Harrison, our associate, but uh, we were missing a minister. And as we turned to the book of Joshua on the Sunday after Andy Pearson had left, perhaps there was a degree of empathy with the feelings of the Israelites as we read of them at the beginning of the book of Joshua. For the opening words of the book of Joshua declared, Moses, my servant, is dead. And while... uh, Moving to Dundee might not be quite as drastic. Like us, the Israelites had also just lost their leader. And in their case, it was one who had led them out of Egypt, out of captivity, and through the wilderness for 40 years. And as we considered that passage then, we were able to draw a degree of comfort from those verses, won't we, in chapter 1, for there we found lessons for ourselves. We could learn from the experience of Joshua, and we could learn from the experience of the Israelites as they finished mourning the loss of their leader. And if you were with us then, we were reminded that God had already prepared another servant to take up the role that Moses had left. And at that time, we were also reminded that God promised to be with the Israelites in the coming days as they went into the land that had been promised to them. In the same way, we too could be assured of God's presence for us as we pass through this period of vacancy, just as Joshua had been told that the Lord God was with them, And with him, so too the Lord Jesus told his disciples that they were not alone. For at the end of Matthew's gospel, we remind ourselves, the Lord Jesus concludes that great commission with the words, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now hopefully the assurances that we were were given to Joshua, haven't just given us some encouragement through this period of uncertainty while we've been vacant. Today, we're just a few weeks away from an induction of a new minister. Hopefully now, we can also look back and give thanks to God for the manner in which he has kept us as a congregation. Perhaps we can give thanks that God has indeed 
prepared another servant to take up the role that the previous minister left. And hopefully we can also look back through this period of vacancy and testify that the Lord God indeed has been with us as he promised. Now I said that it's perhaps appropriate that we've come to this passage this morning because in a sense the Israelites were in a similar position to ourselves. On the nine occasions that we've been able to spend some time reflecting on the, uh, the book of Joshua, we've seen how uh, the Israelites were led into the promised land. We saw how God had prepared them. We saw how God had led them. And we saw how God had provided for them during this time. But we also saw that they faced opposition. We also saw that they fell into temptation. We also saw how they even fell into unbelief and despondency. And are there not abject lessons for ourselves in our Christian lives that we can take from the experiences of God's people of that time? But we also saw that having been chastened, the Israelites were lovingly restored by their God and providentially provided for. And so with the charred and smoking ruins of Jericho and Ai behind them, and the Canaanites in dismay and confusion in front of them, here in this passage we find the Israelites are taking time to reflect on what God has done. In a sense, this passage marks the end of the first section of the book of Joshua. The Lord had promised them a land, and he promised to provide them with a leader in the place of Moses, and he promised to be with them. And as they pause to reflect on the events thus far, as they enter this land of promise, they can see that indeed God has kept those promises that he had made. Now, with uh, a new minister coming, it's probably going to be a little while uh, before uh, I come again to return to reflect again on the book of Joshua. So perhaps we need to stop for a minute and think, what is this book all about? What is its central theme? I wonder what you'd say. Some might think of those dramatic scenes, the miraculous events of crossing the Jordan or the fall of the walls of Jericho. But I suggest that if there's one lesson that we should take from this book, it must surely be this, that God keeps his promises. So as we take a few minutes this morning to consider the passage before us, we'll look at it under three headings. A promise fulfilled, a promise recounted, and then a promise foretold. A promise fulfilled, a promise recounted, and a promise foretold. Look first at verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. 
In the last few weeks, there's been a lot of speculation in the news, hasn't there, about the intentions of Vladimir Putin towards the Ukraine. Various commentators have anticipated just how and where and when his armed forces might make a move. Well, if you were a commentator looking at the Israelite army, you would have been forgiven for thinking that having just had two dramatic victories at Jericho and Ai, that they would be pressing on in their advance. Jericho, you remember, had fallen without a murmur. And after the initial setback at Ai, that city had been destroyed and its army comprehensively defeated. You'd be thinking that the the Israelites were on a roll. Surely they would press home their advantage and attack the next city while the Canaanites were still reeling from their last defeat. But nothing, it seems, could be further from the truth. For we read not just that Joshua and his army, but the whole people of Israel diverted north, marching about 20 miles to a place where two mountains stand side by side. There we read that Joshua built an altar to the Lord. Why? Well, the answer's in the text, isn't it? God had told him to. Back in the world, while Moses was alive, God had given a command to the Israelites through Moses. And we read that command earlier in the passage in Deuteronomy 11, which you have on your sheet. And verse 29 specifically, where it said, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now that probably sounds a bit enigmatic. What does it that mean? But if you want to understand better what that means, then there are more detailed instructions given of the same event, for the same event, in Deuteronomy 27. Now we're not going to look in detail at that passage this morning. But suffice to say that what is recounted here in Joshua tells us and shows us that Joshua followed precisely what God had commanded through Moses in Deuteronomy 27. So let's just take a step back. Let's make sure we understand the scene. Take a few seconds to note these things that we have recorded here in Joshua 8. In verse 33, we're told that all Israel was there. The whole people, thousands of them, Israelites by birth, as well as those who'd come in, people like Rahab, who we read of earlier, those who'd been converted to follow of Israel. And then there were the mighty men, the leaders, the judges, as well as those of lowly birth. There were men and there were women. There were adults. There were children. 
It was a truly extraordinary gathering. Everyone was there. Every single member of the Cove community. And half, we're told, stood in front of Mount Ebal and half in front of Mount Gerizim. And then look at verse 33 again. We see that they were assembled on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, which was in a central position in front of them. Now, we considered the Ark of the Covenant. You remember when we looked at Israel crossing the River Jordan back in chapter 3? And you may remember that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God among his people. The Ark, then, is at the very center of God's people as they gather here. And that reminds us of the very, their very reason for their existence and the very raison d'etre, why they were there as the people of Israel. Their purpose in life, like ours, was to worship God and serve him. God was to be at the very center of their lives. And this is symbolized most powerfully as the Ark of the Covenant is placed there in the very center of the people as they stand on either side. And then what else do we see? We see here that Moses makes an altar of stones built on Mount Ebal. And then again in verse 32 we read of two more stones that are taken. Moses had instructed that these were to be whitewashed in lime. And then we read here that in accordance with the instructions that Moses had given, Joshua wrote down on them a copy of the law. Now, whether this was what we know today as the Ten Commandments or whether it's sections of the book of Deuteronomy, we we can't be sure. But what we do know from verse 34 is that as the people gathered there, the Levites read the law to the people. God, you see, had revealed promises and commands for his people. And these were displayed there right in front of the people on these two stones. From the youngest to the oldest, they heard the words spoken by God, the God in whom they lived and moved and had their very being. Well, I wonder, can you picture that in your, that scene in your mind's eye? I wonder what you would have been thinking if you had been there. Would there have been children climbing onto their parents' shoulders to see what's going on? Wouldn't you have been straining your neck to see round the person in front of you to get a better view? Wouldn't you have had a sense that something really significant was about to happen? London being what it is, people come and leave the congregation here at LCPC all the time. Now, many of you may have only been with us a few months or a few years, but some of you were here in London in 2012 when the Olympics were held here. 
I wonder if you can remember what it felt like. The Olympics had been awarded many years beforehand. We'd been told they were going to happen. And initially it all seemed a long way off. But as time went on, as the time grew closer, the sense of anticipation in the city began to build. Plans were made. A new stadium was built. Volunteers were recruited. Tickets went on sale. And then some of us were fortunate to go and see some event or other. How did you feel if you were there? Wasn't there a sense of excitement? We'd been waiting for years for this to happen. And now it had happened. Well, surely it must have been a bit like that for the Israelites. As we have seen previously, back in Genesis 15, years before, centuries before, God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be taken into exile. But the Lord had also promised Abraham that after 400 years in Egypt, his descendants would be brought out again and taken into the land that God had promised them as an inheritance. For years it had just been a promise to be fulfilled sometime in the distant future. But then Moses had given them some more details about what was to happen when they came into that land. And then the day grew closer. First they crossed the Jordan. But now they were here. This was it. As they strained to see what was going on, as they listened intently to all that was said, then what would they have been thinking? Surely they must have been thinking. It's hard to believe, but it is true. God's promise has been fulfilled. What lesson can we learn for ourselves from this today? Above all, shouldn't it remind us to heed the word of God that he's revealed to us? Doesn't it emphasize the importance of trusting the promises that God gives us in his word in the scripture? No matter what scorn the world around us may heap onto religion, no matter what ridicule you may face from work colleagues or family or friends, for your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can trust the promises that we find in Scripture. And friends, no matter if you go through a time when faith is hard, no matter how distant we may feel from God at times when we struggle in the Christian faith, surely we can cling to this sure truth that if the Lord promises something, then we can be sure that he will fulfill it. Well, if the gathering of the Israelites by Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is a sign of a promise fulfilled, then we also need to think about what happened there. And that brings us to our second promise, which is a promise recounted. It's a solemn scene we have recorded here, isn't it? The people of Israel all assembled together. 
with the Ark of the Covenant standing in between them. A hush falls on the assembled company. And then the Levites speak. And you know, we know what they said because it's laid out in Deuteronomy 27. And this is what it tells us. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a cast, a carved or a cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. The Levites went on and they instruct, they were instructed to pronounce a series of curses in respect of all manner of sins. Sins of action, sins of thought, sins of commission, things done, and sins of omission, things not done. Open sins and secret sins. Sins with our mouths and sins of actions. And in each case, we're told that the assembled company standing in front of the Ark of the Covenant, standing in front of the symbol of God's presence with them, they said, Amen. Amen. So be it. And eventually, the Levites would declare the last of the curses. And they said, Cursed is the one who does not conform to all the words of this law by observing them. Friends, how would you have felt if you were standing there listening to those curses being declared? How would you have felt as the people all around said, Amen, so be it. How would you have felt looking into the center of that gathering to see the Ark of the Covenant, which you knew symbolized the presence of God, who you knew to be holy? The Ark may just have been a symbol, but you knew that God was real. You had seen his righteous anger only in the last few days. The smoking ruins of Ai And the heap of stones over Achan's body were evidence of that. As you heard the last of those curses carried away on the air, wouldn't you have felt a degree of apprehension? Cursed is the one who does not conform to all the words of this law by observing them. And what does question 14 of our shorter catechism ask? What is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Friends, if you were standing there, 
you, like everybody else there, would have been in no doubt that sin is serious. Wouldn't you have been left despairing of what to do? How could you possibly avoid the consequences of this curse? Cursed is the one who does not conform to all the words of this law. Sin is any want of conformity unto the law of God. But God knows that we, like the Israelites, are in a desperate situation. This curse hangs over us and we have no possible means of escape. But in this scene that we have of the Israelites here, we have hope. For look at verses 30 and 31. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And we read that they offered on it a burnt, off, burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, a burnt offering was an offering for sin. And we read instructions for it in Leviticus chapter 1. After the chosen animal was sacrificed, priest would make atonement or covering for sin. And then he built, burnt the entire carcass on the altar. Nothing was saved. The fire completely consumed it. And Leviticus tells us that it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. You see, as well as presenting the Israelites with a declaration of desperate and inescapable position, the Lord here sets before them a promise, a promise of mercy through the burnt offering. And it's a promise which God had given before. You may recall that four centuries earlier, Abraham was required to offer his only son Isaac as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. But then God demonstrated his plan of salvation, didn't he? God stayed Abraham's hand and provided a ram for the sacrifice. It was a ram which was offered as a sacrifice in Isaac's place. And you know, it's significant that the altar was built on Mount Ebal. Because the passage in Deuteronomy tells us that Mount Ebal is where the curse is placed. The curse is on that mountain. The curse which was declared as the Levites read the law was the same curse which needed to be atoned for through the burnt offering. So the burnt offering on the altar at Mount Ebal recounts the same promise to the Israelites gathered there 
as had been shown previously to Abraham. The burnt offering on Mount Ebal pointed to another who would be entirely consumed in the service of his father. The burnt offering on Mount Ebal pointed to one who shed blood did indeed atone for our sin. And the burnt offering on Mount Ebal pointed to the one and only man who did conform to all the law. The burnt offering on Mount Ebal points us to the man, the only man who was not cursed when the people said, Amen, let it be. And the burnt offering points, points of course, to Jesus, the one who... The burnt offering on the mountain of the curse points us to the one who was cursed, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might not be cursed for our sin. Friends, the burnt offering on Mount Ebal points us to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. For there we read about the Lord Jesus Christ. There we read that it is Christ who has loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, we've seen a promise fulfilled, and we've seen a promise of mercy recounted. So finally, we must turn to a promise foretold. From that passage we just read, it says they offered on it, on the altar, burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now the burnt offering was an atonement for sin, which consumed the whole carcass. But the peace offering was completely different. And we read of them... In Leviticus chapter 2, the peace offerings didn't point to a curse which consumed the sinner. Neither did it point to divine wrath which needed to be satisfied. Rather, a peace offering spoke of fellowship with God. For with a peace offering, the worshipper kept part of the meal. They kept part of the meat and use it for a meal for themselves and this meal represented the restored fellowship between the Israelite and his God once his sins had been forgiven and as the people of Israel gathered there and sacrifices were offered it was the peace offerings which gave them a visible assurance that all was good, that all was right with their relationship with God. The peace offerings demonstrated that they could enjoy fellowship with their Lord. Now, up until now, the action has all been on Mount Ebal. We were told it's the mountain of the curse. But we shouldn't forget the other mountain that was there. Mount Gerizim, that was the Mount of Blessing. 
and it speaks of the joy that comes to believers as they worship in the presence of our Lord and God. So as we look on this scene, we see the Lord's people gather together. They face the awful reality of a holy God, a God who is real and one with whom they have to do. They've examined their hearts against the demands of that holy God and they face the devastating truth that they deserve God's curse. But they've also been shown a promise, a promise that God in his mercy would provide the lamb, the one who would be consumed in our place. So trusting in all this, they now enjoy peace with God. Engage in an act of worship which rejoices in his provision. They praise their God for in safety and security, in the knowledge that he has brought them back to the land that he had promised Abraham all those years before. Safe and secure in the knowledge that the Lord is, is indeed a God who keeps his promises. But this location by Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim was a special place in the history of God's people. Abraham was a man who trusted God. And it was here, in this place, centuries beforehand, that Abraham had first come when God told him to leave Haran and go in faith to Canaan. And so it's fitting that many years later, it's here that the children of Israel rejoice in fellowship with their God, trusting in the promise of a future saviour. But these two events aren't the only special events that happened here at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Because the peace offering points us to another promise. One that was made in the same location centuries later. For we read in John's Gospel that one day the Lord Jesus Christ was sitting by a well in the heat of the day. And he struck up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And she tells him that her fathers worshipped on this mountain. And as she points, she's almost certainly pointing to Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. But then Jesus gently corrects her understanding about worship because he gives her a promise. And he says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. You see, Mount Gerizim and the peace offerings are only shadows 
shadows of what is to come. The Lord Jesus promises us, as he did the Samaritan woman, that the blessings of Mount Gerizim are nothing compared to the blessing that awaits those who worship the Father through the glorious, finished, wonderful work of the Lord Jesus. During this past week, um, a friend sent me a quote from Johnny Erickson, um, probably showing my age, maybe you don't know her, but uh, she was a well-known Christian writer at some time past. And she said this, Let's not get too settled in, too satisfied with the good things down here on earth. They are only the tinkling sounds of the orchestra warming up. The real song is about to break into a heavenly symphony, and its prelude is only a few moments away. Friends, the fellowship which the Israelites enjoyed there with their God, here between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, this is just the orchestra warming up. Jesus tells us that his Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. May we all be there with him when the heavenly symphony starts. Praising our God for this that he has fulfilled. Praising the lamb who was sacrificed in our place. And praising God for the wonderful glory of his grace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your tenderness and your graciousness, you have revealed your great plan of salvation down through the centuries to your people. And we marvel, Lord, that as we see how uh, as each generation passes by, you have revealed a little more of your great scheme of redemption whereby you will call a people to yourself, whereby, plunged in their sin, you will rescue them through the most remarkable sacrifice of a substitute, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the passage we've just read of the symbols that you provided to your people all those years ago to speak to them as your covenant community that they should have lives centered around you resting securely in the promise that you would provide the lamb and we thank you Lord all the more that the Lord Jesus Christ did indeed come and that you have given us your word 
to record so clearly to us your mercy toward us, your goodness toward us, your grace toward us. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us uh, hearts which meditate on these things. Help us, Lord, to appreciate our need of you. But, Lord, also help us to so rejoice and have hearts filled with praise for all you have done. We bless you, Lord God, that as we have uh, sung already, both in hymns and in psalms, you are indeed a faithful God. Great indeed is your steadfast love which reaches to the sky. Your constant faithfulness, O Lord, indeed extends to heaven high. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful, a God who keeps his promises, a God who has promised to keep us until the end. And we pray, Lord, that for all of us we might indeed be found amongst that company on that day, praising you, O Lord, for the wonder of the glory of your grace. We do pray, Lord, for us as a congregation, as we move into this uh, new chapter of our lives with a new minister coming, we pray, Lord, that we will be a company of your people who love one another and love the Lord our God. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, build us up in the weeks and months ahead in a, a closer walk with you, and that in doing so, the bonds of love and fellowship within the community within the fellowship, might deepen. May we witness, O oh Lord, to those round about us of the wonderful truth that you have revealed to us. This is sure good news that you have given, and we pray, Lord, that we would delight to share it with others. Ask that you would bless us on this day. Bless us through the means of grace. Bless us through your word, and we pray that it would dwell in us richly deepening our love for the Saviour. And we ask all these things in and through his precious name. Amen.